you were doing so, if you will turn to Philippians chapter 2 as we continue talking about the church. Uh, last week, specifically, we talked about um, kind of the idea of if people will know that we are gods by our, our love for one another. We looked specifically at the importance of unity in the local church as a, a testimony, as a witness of who God is, um, His character, and what He's done for us. Um, this morning we're going to talk about kind of the other direction, um, and maybe in a, a surprising way. So I want to back up and, and briefly remind you of sort of what God's been about from the beginning. Um, remember in the garden that we were made in His image. And that's not just like we think of a, a digital image now, that, that we were somehow a, a digital image or a photograph of God. He's spirit. We don't see Him. More along the idea of we're His representation. We're supposed to represent Him on earth. We are God's character, God's nature, supposed to be on this planet. Um, but time went on, the fall happened, and that nature, that character, that image was defaced. It was marred. And so God began the process that, that Howard talked about of, of, of a plan that it had from the beginning for us. Sort of begins to be fleshed out with Abraham in, in chapter 12. He said, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's this idea that God is after everybody, not just a few people. Even though he begins that, few, that, that everybody seeking through Abraham and eventually the nation of Israel. He repeats that promise to Isaac in Genesis 26. And he repeats that promise to Jacob in Genesis 28, through you all the families on earth will be blessed. Fast forward 500 years and the very first thing that God says to Moses when the nation who's been freed from slavery gets to Mount Sinai is, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. The idea of a priest is being someone who's a go-between between God and, and sinful man. And so I want you to be a kingdom, a whole nation. Yes, there's going to be individual priests, but you as a nation are going to represent me before the other people. Peter uses that same imagery with the church. The church is supposed to be a kingdom of priests. We're called to that, that same exact idea. The church is supposed to represent God, just as we individually do in our daily walk. The church is supposed to represent God to the nations. Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees uh, and the Herodians uh, the last week of his life, they come to him and hand him a coin and says, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, give me the coin whose image is on it. And he uses that word, whose image is on it. Well, Caesar's. Well, then that belongs to Caesar. But give to God the things that belong to God. In other words, harking all the way back to the garden, you're made in his image, therefore you belong to God. He owns you. And you're supposed to be his representative. Not your own representative, not doing your own thing. You belong to God and you're supposed to be his representative. Paul would use similar language in 2 Corinthians. He says that we're supposed to be ambassadors. We're the people that, that are set up in a foreign country that represent the home country, represent the kingdom in this foreign place. We're ambassadors. We represent 
just like an ambassador to the U.S. and France, represents the interests, interests, the character, the desires, the will of the United States. We represent the character, the desires, the will of the kingdom of heaven to the world. Whatever metaphor is used throughout Scripture, the idea is consistent that God's people are supposed to represent Him to the world. Isaiah picks up that same idea, uses a different metaphor as he's talking about his servant, and at times it's unsure if he's talking about the nation of Israel or Jesus, but in Isaiah 42 it's fairly clear that there may be both, but he's clearly talking about Jesus, and he says he's going to be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 42, 6, a light to the nations. Well, what's, what's light for? Well, one thing that light is for is to help us see things. Sometimes it helps us see where things aren't right. Um, it's dark, you walk downstairs, there's a toy, you step on it, that's wrong, right? Because that hurts on a bare foot. But if you turn the light on, it exposes those things that are wrong. Or you're looking around your house and everything's fine, but if the light hits things a certain way, you go, oh, there's cobwebs in the corner. Or you use a light to figure out what's under the bed because I, I don't want there to be spiders when I reach under the bed if that thing I know is under there, right? So light exposes sin. And it doesn't even have to shine directly at it and say, your sin, God's people, by being a certain way, exposes sin. You've been there before, probably. Someone has a conviction, a personal conviction about some gray area in the Christian life, and they make that known to you, not pointing out that you're wrong, but they've just shared a conviction. And in your mind, you go, should I have that conviction too? Or maybe you feel guilty. Oh, I don't have that conviction. Maybe I should. And they've not done anything judgmental. They've just shared something with you. Right? Light tends to work that way, and Christians are supposed to be that way, and they are, and that's why the world hates them. Just being the character of God points out to other people that they're not the character of God, and the world finds that offensive. So number one, light exposes sin. Light exposes things that aren't, aren't correct, and Christ was going to be a light to the nations. Him just showing up and being kind and merciful and forgiving exposed some of the Pharisees' unmerciful actions. Before he ever pointed out anything that they were doing wrong, they felt guilt and became angry because he was just doing what was right. In addition to pointing out sin, light also guides our path. It, it illumines where we're supposed to go. It shows us what we're supposed to be like. Um, it brings hope. It drives out fear. It's what, what light does. And, and Paul picks up that metaphor for us in Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 14. I'm just going to read two verses. We're going to talk about um, two simple verses this morning. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. 
that same idea of that we are a light in the world. And in the context of chapter 2, it goes back to the beginning, what he's talking about is self-sacrifice and submission and putting other people first. And then he gives the perfect example of Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the standard. Right? I, I give up what's rightfully mine. I give up what I could claim, any prerogatives I have, and I become nothing for the sake of somebody else, and I become obedient to God. That's the context of, of what he's talking about. But that's sort of way up here and we could talk about a million different practical applications but what's what I find really odd is the specific practical application that Paul uses that says here is how you are a light to the world here is how you shine your light here is how you show the world the character of God here is how you bear God's image to the world right verse 14 do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some versions say, or complaining or arguing. Really? That's the best you can come up with, Paul? I mean, that's, that's what you want us to do? I mean, why not don't steal or murder, right? Why is it that? Why is that the example of what it means to be a light to the world? Well, because I think that... Any sort of societal pressure can keep us at times from doing the really bad stuff. It's these things that are common to every human being that shows up on the planet that he really wants us to distinguish ourselves from the world by. And that's how we become light. Because when we do that, he says, and this is what's really bizarre, when we do that, when we go through life without grumbling or complaining, he says that we prove ourselves blameless and innocent. How do, how do I know that God has, has come into my life and redeemed it and has justified me and is in the process of sanctifying me? How do I know that's happened for you? Well, when I can watch you going through life without grumbling or or arguing. Really? We show ourselves to be children of God when we do that. Not people who are excluded from the kingdom, but children of the kingdom. We show ourselves to be above reproach. I can't say anything about him. He goes through life without grumbling or without arguing or complaining. And, and this is to a lost world that doesn't get it. When we do those seemingly simple things, but why did he choose those? Because they're hard. So this week I've been keeping track of when I've grumbled or argued or disputed. That word grumble is, is sort of, it's the behind the scenes arguing. It's, the, it's a word that, that is used for sometimes complaining sort of under your breath about something. Not out loud, not in public, just either in your mind or behind your back or maybe just to one other person. I'm tired of that, right? It's the behind-the-scenes, quiet complaint. The other one is the more 
open out loud, disputing with someone, arguing about something, someone in a, with a negative connotation, not just uh, a heated discussion that's going to prove positive, but a, a negative connotation of, of arguing. And Paul says, if we don't do those things, what happens is we're light in the world. So I kept track this week. Every time I would be tempted to argue or grumble in my mind or out loud or someone else or argue with somebody about something, make a note. And then, okay, why did I do that? That was the next thing. What, what's the reason that I felt the need to grumble about something, to complain inwardly or outwardly? Every single time, every single time without complaint, it was because... My kingdom was being disrupted. My desires, my wants, the way I thought life should have gone or could have gone, or it was something that made me feel uncomfortable. I had to make a phone call that I didn't want to make. It turned out that it was perfectly fine. It was wonderful. But I had to make a phone call that I didn't want to make, and I, I grumbled. I don't Why do I? And... And sort of blame someone else for putting me in the situation to have to make the phone call, right? Because it was about me. I was uncomfortable. I didn't want to feel a certain way. So I grumbled. And so I want us to think about that. Practical application. This week... Maybe, maybe you need to actually carry around a notepad or you've got a phone that has notes on it, right? Whenever a grumble comes across your mind or under your breath or out loud or you get into an argument or dispute with someone that's not just simply we're trying to hash something out, just make a note of it. And then when you get a little bit of distance, ask yourself, why? Very specifically, why did that cause me to grumble or murmur, another word that can be used? Why? What was the reason? And the reason is not because they annoyed me. <laughs> I want to go deeper than that. Why, did, why was that annoying to you? Right? And then, because I want us individually and collectively, as Paul said, to be lights in the world. What do we do about that? And as I ponder that, I think, okay, let's think back to the context of what he's talking about. What he's talking about is Jesus was willing to put everything aside and become obedient. Do you think there was ever an opportunity for Jesus to grumble and complain? Just think about the gospel stories and the disciples and the goofball things they did. God, why did you send me these nutheads? The idea that Paul wants us to see is we overcome that sin and any other sin by looking at Christ. And so as you're making note this week of complaining and arguing or grumbling and disputing, whatever words you want to use, as you think, okay, that happened, and as you think, why did that happen? The third thing I want you to do is I want you to look to Christ.
Because what's going on is you're in the process, we're all in the process of kingdom building. The problem is sometimes it's our own kingdom. And we need to look to Christ. What does your kingdom look like? What would your response look like? Are we, as he says back earlier in chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves? Is that person that's annoying me more important than me? Will that help me keep from grumbling about them? Is that person that's too slow or has done something wrong or has made a mess of this, is that person really more important than me? And if we wrestle with that, then we look back to Jesus. Right? Who's more important than Jesus? Who in the universe is more important than Jesus? Well, nobody. He's certainly more important than you. He's certainly more important than me. And yet he treated people like they were more important than him. He always put other people's needs before his own. Even when he was trying to do something, trying to accomplish something with the disciples, when the crowds got in the way, he let them get in the way. They didn't annoy him. He loved them. He cared for them. He healed them. He fed them. He taught them. He didn't say, guys, I'm tired. When he was propped up on the well, he'd sent the guys off to get lunch because he was tired of them, I'm sure, right? He's propped up against the well, taking a nap, and a woman shows up at the wrong time of the day, and he could have just kept his eyes closed and been quiet, and she would have done her thing and gone on, right? Why is this woman here bothering me? Instead, he gets up, and he engages her, and that engagement led to engagement to a whole village of people. He didn't get his nap. He didn't get his rest. Because other people were more important. So when we're tempted to grumble, we think, why am I doing that? And then we look to Jesus. What would you do in the situation? Is that person, that situation, is that, am I really more important than them? That's what I'd love for us to do this week. And Paul says when we do that, and I don't get it, but he says when we do that, when that becomes who we are, a consistent way of life, we're like lights in the world. People notice that. When we stand out as different from the rest of the world because we don't grumble and complain and argue about things, it may not be immediate. No one may come up to you and say, oh, you haven't grumbled this week because maybe it's all in your mind. But my guess is, as we move away from the negative, we will begin, as we look to Jesus, to begin to embrace the positive. Life will become more joyful. Instead of negative things to say, we'll have positive things to say. Instead of being selfish, we'll be selfless. It will begin to exude from our pores this idea of humility and sacrifice and love for others and putting others first. Because that's what God has called us to as individuals and as church. So we think about how, as we think about our relationship with each other, we love each other regardless of how much we annoy each other, and that shows the world that we're Christ's. But day to day, day in and day out, as we relate to the world, 
just our attitude toward people. Personally, for me, most of the grumbling happens because of... It's not usually events, it's usually things. Events don't tend to upset me as much as people do, for whatever reason. I know others, it's different. It's the events of life that sort of drive you crazy. But will we be known as a people who seeks to build God's kingdom instead of our own, and our, our grumbling begins to minimize and wane and replaced by a joy. You read through all of Philippians and what he really wants them to do is to have joy and to rejoice. Instead of thinking about how bad things are, he encourages them to think about what's good. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if anything is excellent, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. It's not just getting rid of my sin, it's embracing a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of being, allowing our our mind, letting Scripture and those thoughts that are worth thinking about wash over us and bathe us and get rid of all that junk or we think really life is really about me. And I'm entitled to grumble because people get in my way and they annoy me and they bother me and they do things I wish they wouldn't do and they force me to be uncomfortable. But that's not the way of the cross. And so let me encourage you really to take a piece of paper or your phone or whatever it is you have and keep track this week. And maybe that's not something that you struggle with. And I praise God for that. But just think, how, how often do I complain and grumble? And how often do I get in an argument with somebody that's not uplifting or beneficial to them or me? And then number two, think about why you do that. And then number three, look to Jesus, look to the cross. And allow His example to guide our thoughts and our ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and the truth that is in it. God, I pray that you would help us to be a people that are joyful. That as life comes at us or as people come at us that uh, tempt us to grumble and complain. God, that we would see you in your example of patience and kindness and mercy and long-suffering. God, we confess that we cannot do that on our own. And so we need your Spirit to not only show us our sin, shine your light on us for us, show us the, the source of that sin, our own heart, our own desires to be a certain way. And God, we ask that your Spirit would show us Jesus, that we might see what it's supposed to look like to interact with the world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.